Hello, friends. I'm Wayne Shepherd, inviting you to listen to the following Bible teaching message by Paul Scharf. Paul is a church ministries representative for the Friends of Israel Gospel Ministry, serving in the Midwest. You'll find all of his ministry resources at sermonaudio.com slash pscharf, where he provides new content on a regular basis, including a weekly column that he writes, along with news and updates. Right now, we encourage you to follow along as we open God's Word for today's presentation. It's our prayer that the Lord God will use this teaching to bring glory to Himself and to work faith in each of our hearts. Here now with the sermon is Paul Scharf. Welcome this morning. It's great to have all of you with us. Thank you for joining us here at Grace Bible Church as we are remembering and celebrating the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Thank you, Dave, for that prayer and that, those uh, wonderful uh, uh, that wonderful illustration of the things that we're here to consider this morning. We are going to be looking this morning based in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, and we're also going to turn to about three other passages along the way to amplify what we see in chapter 5. And if you were with us last week, you will know that uh, we are surveying the book of 2 Corinthians over the next few weeks, and that fits perfectly with um, the things that we're celebrating today as we come to chapter 5, just as last week was very fitting that we looked at 2 Corinthians chapter 4 on Palm Sunday and today we, we uh, may not often turn to 2 Corinthians 5 on Easter Sunday, but it, even apart from the, uh, the effort, the series to go through 2 Corinthians, it would be a very appropriate place to turn. We begin this morning, let's just back up into chapter 4, beginning in verse 16. And we uh, ended here last week, and we remember that the theme of chapter 4 is really based around this idea we do not lose heart. We do not lose heart. We do not faint. We do not quit. We rem- you may remember that the, the words lose heart have uh, within them in the original text, uh, the makeup of the original wording contains the element of evil, that losing heart is not simply um, lack of endurance or... Uh, even giving up or something like that, but that it's an act of evil. It's an act of sin. And it's, it is so because to lose heart is to lose our focus on the work of the Lord God who is working all things for his glory and for our good. As Paul is describing it here in Second Corinthians chapter 4, And Paul says, therefore, we do not lose heart. Now, how many of you, if you looked at the uh, national or international news over the last few days, you might be tempted to lose heart? My goodness, it looks like the world is coming absolutely unglued, doesn't it? We don't know what to believe, what to think, what to understand about any of it. Can't hardly even keep up with the news or follow what's even going on to begin with. How many of you, if you looked at the circumstances of your own life, say nothing of the international news, would be tempted to lose heart? We could probably all raise our hands again for that issue. 
Now, we must remember that the circumstances of life, of course, first of all, always have to be interpreted by anyone and everyone. Whether our interpretation of those events is correct or incorrect, we're always interpreting events. And the only infallible guide to interpreting the circumstances of the world or even of our own lives is through God's perfect revelation in Scripture. And apart from that understanding, there are many, many things that we could misinterpret and that would cause us to lose heart. Let me give you a couple that may surprise you. You can turn with me or just listen as I read a couple of verses from John chapter 20. Well, actually, we could even back up into John chapter 19, where Jesus was hanging on the cross. And uh, this morning, we'll not go through that whole narrative where Jesus is on the cross, which we remembered this past Friday, of course, on Good Friday, where Jesus paid the infinite cost for our sin until he cried out, it is finished, in John 19, verse 30. But we know that his very disciples misinterpreted the events of the cross. They were completely overwhelmed, totally disheartened by those events. They did not understand their real and true significance. They lost heart at the cross. And can you imagine being a disciple of Jesus Christ and being there on that all-important day when he goes to the cross to pay for the sins of the world and being disheartened, overwhelmed, feeling frustrated, feeling like you were a failure, feeling perhaps even like Jesus was a failure. They misinterpreted those events. Let me give you something even more extreme. They misinterpreted the events on Easter Sunday. In John chapter 20, Peter and John are at the empty tomb of Jesus. And yet verse 9 records, As yet they did not know the Scriptures, that he must rise again from the dead. Then the disciples went away again to their own homes. They did not know what to make even of the empty tomb of Jesus after his death. In fact, Mary Magdalene, John chapter 20, verse 11, stood outside by the tomb weeping. And as she wept, she stooped down and looked into the tomb, and she saw two angels in white sitting, one at the head and the other at the feet where the body of Jesus had lain. Then they said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? She said to them, because they have taken away my Lord, and I do not know where they have laid him. If you were looking at the circumstances of life this morning, apart from the inspired interpretation that allows you to understand those events correctly, you will lose heart. Even if you had been alive to be at the very empty tomb of Jesus Christ, you would not understand those events apart from the revelation that God has given to us in his written word. And you would lose heart. But Paul says, based on all that we can know through God's word, we do not lose heart. And we do not lose heart because of the things that he describes. In 2 Corinthians 4, verse 16, he says, Even though our outward man is perishing, 
yet the inward man is being renewed day by day. Now we're going to think today about the perishing of our outward man, our physical, finite human bodies that each of us have, that um, aside from being alive when the Lord returns, if you're a believer, your body and mine, one day, of course, our bodies will die. We will die. We will experience death. And yet, that is not the end even of our bodies, as we will see this morning. And that is what the resurrection is all about. It's the hope that it gives the believer in Jesus Christ that as he lives, as he has opened the way through death unto eternal life, so we will live with him forever if we know him as our Savior. Paul says, even though our outward man is perishing, You have aches and pains and all kinds of ailments and problems, and yet the inward man is being renewed day by day. Verse 17, for our light affliction, whatever your circumstances are this morning, and it may be very severe, I don't discount that, but in terms of Paul categorizing it for us, in terms of eternity, he calls it a light affliction. Now, it may not be light in your estimation, but it is light in comparison with something else. Notice what Paul says, Our light affliction, which is but for a moment, it's temporary, is working for us a far more exceeding and eternal weight of glory. Our afflictions are light, but the glory that the suffering that we endure in this life allows us to one day have the capacity to exhibit and to demonstrate and to shine forth the glory of God, that is far weightier than the affliction that we currently suffer. When you think of something that is weighty, maybe you think of uh, something like a a bar of gold or uh, a giant timber frame in a luxurious house. That's the picture that Paul is painting for us here. An eternal weight of glory. He's going to come back to that idea as we get into chapter 5. He says, while we do not look at the things which are seen. You say, well, all we can do is look at the things which are seen. That's That's how we see, right? Paul says, we do not look at the things which are seen. In other words, we do not focus on that which is visible, He says, but the things which are not seen, those that are invisible. Again, we can only see the invisible through the inspired interpretation offered in the Word of God. We see the invisible meaning and significance of the visible events before us and around us, such as at the empty tomb of Christ. We do not look at the things which are seen, but at the things which are not seen. For the things which are seen are temporary, but the things which are not seen are eternal. This morning, all the turmoil in this world notwithstanding, we can live in such a way that we do not lose heart because our focus is not on these temporary and visible things, but we understand the eternal, invisible, spiritual significance of the circumstances in our own lives, the events of the world, but even more importantly, 
the work of Jesus Christ on the cross and at the empty tomb, which gives us hope that we will live forever with him. As Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5, verse 1, For we know, we know this. Again, we do not learn this based on looking at our circumstances, those temporary invisible things, but we know these things through God's revelation. And we'll see more of it this morning from some parallel passages that we will look at. We know that if our earthly house, this tent, is destroyed, we have a building from God, a house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. Now, is Paul talking here about our home where we will live in heaven? It sounds like that could be what he is talking about, and we know that that is a legitimate idea. Jesus said, In my Father's house are many mansions, or many dwelling places. And he described that in John chapter 14. So there would be nothing unusual or inappropriate about Paul talking about our eternal home in heaven in that sense. And we have a a great hope that we do have a home in heaven through Jesus Christ if we're believers in him. But I think that in the context surrounding these verses, both above as we've looked at this morning and below that we'll be coming into, This is not what Paul is talking about. He is using the house here, the building, as a metaphor for our bodies. And he is, again, building on this idea, this comparison of verse 17, the light and the weighty. Notice what he says. We know that if our earthly house, this tent, our limited, finite, fallen, physical bodies that are subject to mortality, that we possess now, they are like a tent. A tent is very temporary. Most people don't live in a tent or expect to or hope to. Uh, And we realize the frailty, the problems with tents. And Paul was a tent maker. He knew all about tents. In the Old Testament, there was a time when the people of Israel were unsettled in their promised land when the the worship of God was conducted in a tent, the tabernacle. But then there was a day when God allowed King Solomon to build a house for the Lord God, for the people to worship in, the temple, which was far more glorious and obviously far more permanent. If our tent is destroyed... We have a building from God. We have something far weightier, far more significant. A house not made with hands eternal in the heavens. This is the glorified body that each believer will possess in heaven for eternity. It is as a a palace is to a tent, so our glorified body is to our non-glorified physical bodies, our mortal bodies. And perhaps you can identify with Paul as you got out of bed this morning in verse 2. As we are in this tent, he says, in this we, what? Groan. Earnestly desiring to be clothed with our habitation which is from heaven. We, we live in this frail tent in which we groan, 
desiring, longing for that day when we will have our eternal habitation in heaven. If indeed, Paul says, having been clothed, we shall not be found naked. For we who are in this tent groan, being burdened, not because we want to be unclothed. We're not like uh, buying into Greek philosophy that the greatest thing would be to become a disembodied spirit. That's not our hope but further clothed that mortality may be swallowed up by life. Now let's build on that last phrase, mortality may be swallowed up by life, and turn back to the great resurrection chapter, 1 Corinthians 15. Just a few pages back to the left in your Bible. Paul in 1 Corinthians 15 spends all 58 verses talking about the resurrection, the certainty and the meaning, the significance, and the application of the resurrection of Jesus Christ, this physical, visible resurrection from the grave and from death, a fundamental of the Christian faith, believing that Jesus actually rose from the dead in real history. Paul details this all the way down to verse 34. And then in verse 35 and following, he gets into the area of applying this to our personal situation, our personal lives, our our physical bodies. Because Jesus, again, has said that because he lives, we will live also. How does his resurrection body relate to us? Paul answers that question. And in fact, he begins with it. He says, but someone will say, how are the dead raised up and with what body do they come? He says, foolish one, what you sow is not made alive unless it dies. And what you sow, you do not sow the body that shall be, but mere grain, perhaps wheat or some other grain. But God gives it a body as he pleases and to each seed its own body. And he's using the the simple illustration of sowing a seed in the ground and then it comes up out of the ground and grows into something far more glorious. And he says, all flesh is not the same flesh, but there is one kind of flesh of men, another flesh of animals, another of fish, another of birds. In other words, there is similarity and yet distinctiveness among these various kinds of flesh and these various kinds of bodies. Then he moves to another class of bodies in verse 40. There are also celestial bodies and terrestrial bodies, But the glory of the celestial is one, and the glory of the terrestrial is another. There's one glory of the sun, another glory of the moon, another glory of the stars. For one star differs from another star in glory. So he's showing, again, how God is the creator of all of these bodies, earthly types of bodies, heavenly, celestial types of bodies, distinct from each other, similar in categories. And now he's getting to his point. Verse 42, so also is the resurrection of the dead. The body is sown in corruption. It is raised in incorruption. It is sown in dishonor. It is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness. It is raised in power. As you perhaps stand at the graveside of a loved one, and see their body in the casket being placed into the ground, we could honestly say that there, is, there could be nothing that more clearly demonstrates corruption, dishonor, and weakness 
than to have your body become lifeless and, and be placed in the ground. Not that, not that we're trying to dishonor a person by doing that, but it shows the corruptibility, the mortality, the frailty, the fallenness of everything about us as human beings in this world. But Paul says, of course, the contrast of that is incorruption, glory, power when that body is raised. It is sown a natural body, or literally a soulish body, a body that is intended to be fit for our souls. It is raised a spiritual body, a body that is intended to display, to be useful to your spirit. The difference between soul and spirit is not a difference in essence, but a difference in their function. In this world, we function primarily through our souls, but in the next world, we will function primarily through our spirits. Paul says there is a natural body, a soulish body, and there is a spiritual body. And so it is written, the first man, Adam, became a living being. That's how we got our life from God giving life to Adam. The last Adam became a life-giving spirit. Who is the last Adam? It is Jesus Christ, the second Adam from above. However, the spiritual is not first, but the natural, and afterward the spiritual. The first man was of the earth, made of dust. The second man is the Lord from heaven. As was the man of dust, so also are those who are made of dust. And as is the heavenly man, so also are those who are heavenly. And as we have borne the image of the man of dust, we shall also bear the image of the heavenly man. We live today as sons of Adam, but we will be raised in the likeness of Jesus Christ in his resurrection glorified body. Now what was that body like? Well, I'm going to turn over now to Luke chapter 24. And please follow with me because we're going to make a very direct point out of all this in just a moment. Luke in his gospel chapter 24 presents the resurrection account and uh, gives us several unique Passages within this chapter, the disciples on the road to Emmaus, followed by Jesus meeting his disciples that very night, the first Easter Sunday, verse 36, and as they said these things, Jesus himself stood in the midst of them and said to them, Peace to you. And if we turn over to John 20, which we may not for sake of time, we would see that Jesus in his glorified body has the ability to come into a room with the doors locked and to come right into the room. Though there is no way, apparently, to get into the room except to somehow appear mysteriously through the walls of the room. You say, is that because Jesus is God that he can do that? Well, he, being God, can do anything that he wills to do that is consistent with his nature, but I don't think that's how he gets into those rooms. I think that that is a manifestation of his glorified body, a a capability that he has in his glorified body. 
Now, if you remember what we saw in 1 Corinthians 15, we will bear the image of that heavenly man. We'll have the same type of glorified body. And that that body is described here in Luke chapter 24. They were terrified and frightened and supposed they had seen a spirit. They thought they were seeing what? A ghost. Was Jesus a spirit? Was this a ghost? No, he's not a spirit. He's not a disembodied spirit. He is in a fully functioning, physical, glorified body. And here's how he proves it to them. He said to them, Why are you troubled, and why do doubts arise in your hearts? Behold my hands and my feet, that it is I myself. Handle me and see, for a spirit does not have flesh and bones, as you see I have. They could grab onto his hands and his feet and touch him. It was in, he was a, had a real body. Now, you're, some of you are really going to like this next part, too, and I guess it fits along with my um, gift today, because I guess as an illustration, I could start eating that uh, bunny, because look what it says. When he had said this, he showed them his hands and his feet, but while they still did not believe for joy and marveled, he said to them, what? Have you any food here? How many are glad to know that in your glorified body you'll be able to eat food? So they gave him a piece of a broiled fish and some honeycomb, and he took it and ate it in their presence. He had flesh and bones. Isn't that interesting? He doesn't say uh, flesh and blood. There's the possibility that God somehow has a different mechanism for running our spiritual bodies, our glorified bodies in heaven, that they won't run on blood that there will be some other spiritual force other than blood that will keep us alive. That may not be what it is saying. It may be the fact that flesh and blood is a reference throughout the the scriptures to the natural man. And uh, Jesus is saying here, uh, perhaps I am physical, I am flesh and bones, but I am not, not any longer a natural person, flesh and blood. At any rate, we see that Jesus here was not a spirit. He could be handled and touched. He could eat. He could even be mistaken for a non-glorified person. Verses 15 and 16 of this chapter, the, the disciples on the road to Emmaus. And he pictures our resurrection body. This is the same type of body, again, that we will have. We're going to go back to 1 Corinthians 15 and then get back to 2 Corinthians chapter 5. Because Jesus' resurrection body is the pattern for our future resurrection bodies. Paul describes this in 1 Corinthians 15, beginning again in verse 50. Now this I say, brethren, that flesh and blood... There's that reference, cannot inherit the kingdom of God. We cannot as natural people inherit the kingdom of God. We must be changed. We must put on incorruption. He says, behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed. That is all believers. And he speaks about the return of Christ, the imminent return of Christ, where those believers alive, when they hear the trumpet sound, the dead will be raised incorruptible, and the living will be glorified and all will be changed. And this corruptible must put on incorruption, and this mortal must put on immortality. So when this corruptible is put on incorruption, 
and this mortal has put on immortality, then shall be brought to pass the saying that is written, Death is swallowed up in victory. Now turn back to 2 Corinthians 5, and we'll see verse 4. We who are in this tent groan, being burdened, not because we want to be unclothed, but further clothed, that mortality may be swallowed up by life. Do you see the parallel there? Do you see that we're talking here about not the house that we'll live in in heaven, but the body that will have forever in heaven a glorified, resurrected, resurrected physical body patterned after the resurrection body of Christ our Lord that we will have forever in heaven. Our body is a necessary part of us. God did not create us to live without a body. And though our body goes into the ground when we die, our soul spirit goes to heaven to be with the Lord, as Paul will describe here, we are not intended to live in that state eternally, but instead to have a resurrection body, a glorified body, as the one that Jesus has since he rose from death and the grave And in fact, verse 5 says, Now he who has prepared us for this very thing is God, who also has given us the Spirit as a guarantee. 2 Corinthians 1.22, He has sealed us and given us the Spirit in our hearts as a guarantee. The Holy Spirit living within you as a believer is a guarantee and a seal of the importance of your physical body. And he will watch over that body and preserve that seal until the day when finally your body is raised from the grave and presented incorruptible to God. And Paul says, so we are always confident. We do not lose heart. We are always confident knowing that while we are at home in the body, we are absent from the Lord. Right now we're not with the Lord physically, we're absent from Him, we're in our physical bodies. So does that mean that we should look for some kind of sign that the Lord is with us? Does that mean that we should be listening for the voice of Jesus speaking to us? No, Paul says it means the opposite. We walk by faith, not by sight. You remember someone on the first Easter who wanted desperately to have physical, tangible proof and evidence, a a tactile experience of seeing and touching the wounds of Jesus? Oh yes, it was Doubting Thomas. And the Lord granted him his carnal request one week after Easter. This is one of those events where Jesus came into the room with the doors being shut. And he said to Thomas, reach your finger here and look at my hands and reach your hand here and put it into my side. Do not be unbelieving, but believing. Thomas was awestruck at this event. He certainly gave up on his original intentions and simply said, My Lord and my God. And Jesus said to him, Thomas, because you have seen me, you have believed. Blessed are those who have not seen 
and yet have believed. First Peter 1.8, whom having not seen Christ, we love him. We walk by faith, not by sight. Verse 8, and we are confident, yes, well pleased, rather to be absent from the body and to be present with the Lord. Paul is not suicidal. He is not going to prematurely end his life to uh, go and uh, to meet the Lord in heaven before it is God's will for him to do so. But he derives his confidence for this life from the fact that nothing can happen to him in his physical life that ultimately will not simply drive him to be in his heavenly home present with the Lord. This is the death of a believer. Paul says to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. Now for the sake of time this morning, uh, we're not going to make it all the way through 2 Corinthians chapter 5. And uh, we're just going to think of a couple of very important precepts before we close this morning to tie all of this together. I've been saying many things this morning that apply to the believer in Jesus Christ who finds their hope in his death, burial, and resurrection and literally has an eternal hope for your physical body to be resurrected, to be glorified because Jesus Christ was risen from the dead. He is resurrected and has a glorified body and and your body will one day be patterned after his glorified body. And because of that, we have the, not only the hope, but the ability to look at the things of this world and interpret them through the lens of Holy Scripture and understand the things that are happening in our lives and in this world. And the things that the Bible presents to us, the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ, we understand those events properly and their significance through the interpretation that the scripture itself gives to us. And therefore we have hope and we realize that our light afflictions of this world are almost incomparable next to the eternal weight of glory that they are working for us. And that our afflictions that we suffer in this life are only magnifying our ability that we will have to reflect the glory of God for all eternity. But if you're here this morning and you have never trusted in Jesus Christ, this one whom we celebrate today, the eternal Son of God who came down from heaven and became our Savior, he took human flesh to himself and became also man, being eternal God. And he came to this world and he died on the cross for the sins of all men and women. And all boys and girls, everyone who would ever live, he died on the cross paying an infinite price. Being eternal God, he was able to pay the infinite price of the sins of the world in a limited amount of time on the cross because his sufferings and death were of infinite and eternal value. And then, having completed the work of our salvation, paying all the price for our sin before he died on that cross, he was buried, showing that he was truly dead and fulfilling prophecy and uh, just uh, accomplishing a number of things, even in his burial that Scripture talks about. 
and the fact that his body miraculously did not begin to decay and he did not continue to suffer for our sins, but then he also rose from death, literally rose again in a physical, glorified, resurrected body, opening the way to life because he lives, we can live also. But if you've never trusted in him and his payment for your sin, in the fact that it's because he lives, you can live also, then you do not have any of these things we've been talking about this morning until you simply place your faith in Christ to be your Savior, realizing that you are a sinner, that he paid for your sins on that cross, and that you, being convicted of your sin, come to him and ask for forgiveness of sin and the gift of eternal life in heaven through his work alone. If you've never done that, you can do it this morning. And we just want to close by thinking of that very pointedly in just a couple of the verses in the remainder of the chapter. Paul says in verse 14 of this great chapter, the love of Christ compels us. His love for us is so magnificent, it drives us in our lives because we judge thus that if one died for all, he died for the sins of all, then all died. We were all dead in the sin of Adam. But Christ, the second Adam, died for all. And he died for all that those who live should live no longer for themselves, but for him who died for them and rose again. But notice, he goes on to say, verse 19, God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself not imputing their trespasses to them. God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself, not imputing their trespasses to them. You say, well, that sounds then like all the world will be saved because Christ has died for all the world. He's died for all, verse 14. He died for all, verse 15. Ah, but notice verse 15. He died for all, but there's a smaller group listed next, those who live. You must personally accept and believe and receive Jesus Christ and his gift of salvation, even though he died for you in your place, if you do not accept the reconciliation that he provided with God, if you do not receive the fact that He is willing to not impute your sins to you if you do not receive Paul's imploring you on Christ's behalf, verse 20, be reconciled to God, then in spite of all that Christ has done, you will still pay eternally Because you do not have an infinite sacrifice to offer, therefore you would have to pay eternally, forever, in the lake of fire, still the infinite cost of your sin. Revelation 21.8 The cowardly, unbelieving, abominable, murderers, sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars shall have their part in the lake which burns with fire and brimstone, which is the second death. When they stand at the final great white throne judgment, all unbelievers, the dead, small and great, standing before God, will be judged according to their works. Revelation 20, verse 12. 
What makes all the difference? It's the opening of the books of God's records. And anyone not found written in the book of life was cast into the lake of fire. Is your name in the book of life? Have you trusted in Jesus Christ? Notice what God did through Jesus Christ. Verse 21. As someone has said, 15 words that changed the world. 15 words in the original text of the Greek language. He made him who knew no sin, Christ who knew no sin, to be sin for us. Did Christ become a sinner or sinful? No. He bore the sins of the world. God treated Christ as he should have treated me. He saw my sin upon his own son and he judged that sin and poured out the complete full measure of his wrath and why did he do that that we might become the righteousness of God in him does that mean God has made me righteous like God no just as Christ is not a sinner neither am I righteous But as God treated Christ as he should have treated me, he treats me now like he treats his own son, Jesus Christ. The only thing in God's record book next to my name is the eternal righteousness of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. And that, I trust, is your testimony as well this morning through faith. In Jesus Christ. And if that is the case, then you should not lose heart. And you have a firm foundation upon which you can stand and evaluate all the events of this life and realize that our light affliction, which is but for a moment, is working for us a far more exceeding and eternal weight of glory. Father, we thank you today for this resurrection message, this glorious, wonderful truth that we will, if if we are believers in Jesus Christ, we will have one day an eternal heavenly home in a resurrected, glorified body. We thank you for this, Lord. I pray that you will use these truths to encourage us, Lord, and to help us to make sense and understand the events of this time and this life. We thank you for this day, this Easter Sunday, and I pray that you will bless each one who is here today. Thank you for bringing us together to worship and to remember these wonderful truths. For we pray in the name of your risen Son, Jesus Christ. Amen.